In 443 CE, the inhabitants of the city of Nisus cowered behind their stone walls, praying for deliverance. Outside the city gates, men they deemed barbarians clamored to pillage the town. Attila, king of the Huns, had come for them. But Attila wasn't just sacking Nisus in order to expand his already vast Hunnic empire. Rather, it was part of one of the most successful extortion rackets in history. Thanks to the terror his Hun warriors inspired, Attila shook down the Eastern Roman Empire for hundreds of pounds of gold each year. And whenever the Eastern Emperor refused to pay, it was ordinary Romans, like those in Nisus, who had to bear the brunt of Attila's fury. At Nisus, the Huns pushed large cranes up to the walls of the city, which allowed their skilled archers to rain hellfire down on the city's defenders. Inside the city, terrified Romans prayed that their formidable walls would protect them. Perhaps the Huns would run out of fire arrows, grow exhausted, and leave. But any hope of deliverance was dashed when the sound of iron-headed rams started hammering into the stone walls. Attila was coming to coat the streets with Roman blood. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're exploring the lives of some of history's most famous world conquerors. Today, we begin our dive into the life of the charismatic and ruthless leader of the Huns, Attila. This week, we'll look at the rise of the Huns in Central and Eastern Europe during the waning days of the Roman Empire. We'll also explore the rise of Attila and his brother Bleda, and how they brought fire and death to one of the most powerful empires in history. Next week, we'll dive into the Roman conspiracy to assassinate Attila, and how Attila took out his vengeance by leading the Huns deeper and deeper into Roman territory. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. By the time the Huns first made contact with the Romans in the 4th century, the character of the Roman Empire had changed dramatically, thanks to the so-called Crisis of the 3rd Century. The crisis had no single cause, but rather multiple interrelated origins. In short, an economic downturn, a pandemic, and increased attacks from neighbors led to turmoil and chaos. Starting around 235 CE, the empire suffered 50 years of constant civil war, political instability, peasant uprisings, and border raids. The ancient historian Cassius Dio remarked that the period saw a descent, quote, from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust. In 293 CE, Emperor Diocletian helped put an end to the crisis by dividing the empire into four administrations, making it easier to govern. Over time, however, the plan was simplified into a two-way split, 
a Western Roman Empire and an Eastern Roman Empire, each with its own emperor. The Eastern Emperor ruled from the great city of Constantinople, today known as Istanbul. In the West, the capital was eventually moved from Rome to Ravenna in northeastern Italy. Nominally, the two emperors were equals who ruled a single empire together. But steadily, the two halves drifted apart as each leader prioritized his half of the empire over the other. By the time the Huns arrived in Europe in the 4th century, both emperors were as likely to undermine as they were to support each other, if it meant protecting their interests. It was only a matter of time before a ruthless tribal chieftain finished what the crisis had started. In the 370s CE, Roman soldiers stationed along the Danube River, which marked one of the borders of the Eastern Roman Empire, began hearing reports of a foreign people appearing from north of the Black Sea, the Huns. Almost everything we know about the Huns comes from Roman sources. The Huns left no written language, and only a handful of Hunnic words were recorded. Thus, our information is heavily colored by Roman biases. In fact, even the only physical description we have of the Huns prior to Attila shows this prejudice. The Roman writer Ammianus described them as, quote, so hideously ugly and distorted that they could be mistaken for two-legged beasts. But what Roman commentators failed to record and probably did not understand was that a minority of Huns practiced artificial cranial deformation. Some Hunnic children had their heads tightly bound so that as they grew up, their skulls became unnaturally elongated. We know the Huns practiced head binding thanks to grave finds and later Hun portraits. But we do not know why cranial deformation was practiced. It may have had religious significance or as a way to distinguish important families, or it simply could have been a style choice. Romans, however, perceived it as a symbol of the Huns' inferiority, which they extrapolated into the realm of morality, too. According to Ammianus, the Huns had no concept of right or wrong. Rather, everything they did was apparently driven by a desire for loot. Of course, Ammianus never actually saw a Hun with his own eyes. The Romans' negative perception of the Huns may have been due in part to the fact that they seemed to appear out of nowhere. As a complete unknown, they seemed like an almost mythical existential threat. Even today, we still do not know for certain the origin of the Hunnic people. All we know is that they came from somewhere on the Eurasian steppe, the vast, flat grasslands stretching from northeastern China to Hungary. Nor do we know why they moved west in the first place. One ancient myth suggests that a Hunnic hunting party chased a stray animal further and further until they stumbled upon the Goths, a Germanic people living near the Western Roman Empire's eastern border. But according to historian Adrian Goldsworthy, the most likely explanation is that the Huns were simply attracted to the wealth of Rome. Like many other groups deemed barbarian and lumped together by the Romans, the Huns were not initially one united people. When they first showed up in Europe, they consisted of many smaller kin groups who might temporarily band together for a raid. 
Their arrival was not marked by one vast horde or led by a single charismatic warlord. Rather, their movement was a steady trickle of immigration by groups of families. However, as the immigration continued, these small groupings did coalesce into large groups, first as a means of protection and then to assert their dominance against other tribes living beyond Rome's borders, like the Goths and the Alans. Before long, the growing horde of Huns fought, raided, terrorized, and defeated these other groups. As they proved their might, some of their enemies fled into the Eastern Roman Empire, including large numbers of Goths. Others, especially the Alans, joined the Huns as subordinates. In fact, by the time of Attila, most warriors in his army probably consisted not of Huns, but of various subordinate allies. Part of the Huns' early success is explained by the fact that they were initially a nomadic people and used to living on the move. They could strike a village suddenly, then retreat quickly. At the same time, they were expert horseback fighters. Because they often relied on hunting for food, the Huns became excellent horse archers. Their main weapon was an unusually large and powerful composite bow. Their ability to fight on horseback allowed them to cover great distances quickly and choose when and where to fight. It was more a guerrilla style of fighting as opposed to traditional pitched battle. The Huns were able to overwhelm their enemies, causing early and sudden triumph. Steadily, more groups of people were forced to either submit to the Huns or flee and seek safety in the Eastern Roman Empire. In spring 376 CE, perhaps as many as 80,000 Goths arrived on the banks of the Danube in the hopes of finding refuge in the empire. Eastern Emperor Valens did not have the troops on hand to stop the Goths, so he agreed to allow them entry. After making the crossing, the thousands of Gothic refugees lived in pitiful conditions in a makeshift camp. They were so short on food that it was said they sold their own children into slavery in order to afford dog meat. One child bought one dog. After seven months in these conditions, the local Roman governors, apparently viewing the Goths as a threat, unsuccessfully attempted to assassinate their leaders. Infuriated, the Goths rose in rebellion. Fearing for the safety of Constantinople, Valens decided to personally lead his army and put down the uprising. In August 378 CE, Valens' troops engaged the Goths near the city of Adrianople, today known as Edirne and located in northwestern Turkey. They lost. The battle was a total rout. A combination of Roman impatience and Gothic ingenuity gave the Goths the upper hand. By the time the dust settled, nearly 20,000 Roman soldiers lay dead, including Emperor Valens. In the wake of the battle, the Eastern Empire was seriously weakened. Valens' successor had little choice but to negotiate peace with the Gothic refugees, giving them land in exchange for military service. And while the Huns were not directly responsible for Adrianople, their sudden appearance in Eastern Europe set off a chain of events that led to Roman defeat, and thus opened the empire for more direct attacks. 
In 394 CE, a group of Huns crossed the Danube to raid the villages of the settled Goths for plunder and captives. The next year, another group of Huns crossed the Caucasus Mountains and raided Armenia and Syria. The increase in Hun attacks led one Roman monk to write, quote, The wolves of the north were let loose upon us. Countless monasteries were captured. Innumerable streams that once flowed with water now ran red with human blood. But as the Hun raids continued, some Eastern emperors couldn't ignore their skills as fighters and their abilities to strike fear in other enemies of Rome. Perhaps these wolves of the north could be also used as mercenaries. In 401 CE, Eastern Emperor Arcadius negotiated peace with a prominent Hunnic leader named Uldin. Uldin was widely considered the first Hun known by name to unite the disparate tribes and rule as king. As such, with their deal in place, Hun warriors now fought as mercenaries in the Eastern Roman army. They would eventually work for the Western Roman army as well. But fighting as mercenaries wasn't the only new venture for the Huns. Throughout the early 400s CE, the Huns discovered they could actually make more money by demanding tribute in exchange for not attacking. In effect, they created an extortion racket. Since the empire was no longer the military power of yesteryear, its leaders learned to live with the extortion. Though they attempted to put an end to the racket by way of battle or assassination, the Romans were never able to keep the Huns under complete control. This, of course, only led Hunnic leaders to grow more emboldened in their demands against the empire and in their aspirations for the Hunnic Empire. Though it isn't clear exactly when or how they came to power, by 422 CE, two brothers, Rua and Akhtar, ruled over most or all of the European Huns. And in that year, they demanded and received an annual tribute of 350 pounds of gold from the Eastern Roman Empire. We know very little about the reign of Akhtar and Rua. What we do know is this. In 430 CE, Akhtar died, making Rua sole king. Four years later, Rua threatened to attack the Balkan provinces if the Romans did not increase their yearly tribute. When the Romans refused, Rua devastated the communities in present-day Bulgaria and threatened the capital of Constantinople. However, before the Huns reached the city, they suddenly withdrew. The Romans believed God intervened. In truth, Rua had unexpectedly died. Seeing the Huns withdraw back across the Danube, the Romans breathed a sigh of relief. Perhaps they were now free from threat by a unified Hunnic Empire. There was no way that Rua's nephews, Bleda and Attila, could inspire the Huns like previous warlords. Or so they thought. Coming up... Attila and Bleda eliminate their rivals and earn a fearsome reputation. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear 
and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 434 CE, the Hun warrior known as Rua ruled over the growing Hunnic Empire in Eastern and Central Europe. In keeping with Hunnic tradition, Rua demanded that the Eastern Roman Empire pay him tribute or face his wrath. When the Eastern Roman Emperor refused, Rua made good on his promise and devastated provinces in the Balkans. But as Rua inched closer to Constantinople, he suddenly died, forcing the Hun army to retreat back across the Danube. The Romans hoped the Hun threat had finally come to an end. Unfortunately for them, the Hunnic Empire would only grow stronger and more ruthless in Rua's wake. So much so that the Archbishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, would eventually lament that the Huns had become the masters and the Romans slaves. That dramatic, if somewhat exaggerated, reversal was the work of one man, Attila. Attila was likely born somewhere on the Great Hungarian Plain, the westernmost piece of the Eurasian steppe, and the heart of the Hunnic Empire. His birth year is unknown, but it's believed to be sometime in the early 5th century. His father, Munzuk, was a brother of Rua and Akhtar, so Attila was born into the most prominent Hunnic family. Not much is known of his childhood, but with what we understand about general Hunnic customs, some safe assumptions can be made. Attila was raised alongside his elder brother, Bleda, and together they were taught how to ride, how to hunt, and how to use a bow and sword and lasso. They likely learned how to speak Gothic, as the Goths were the most numerous subordinate allies of the Huns, and may have also learned to read and speak Latin. Almost certainly, they joined their uncles in the raids in the Balkans, and likely in various unrecorded skirmishes north of the Danube. By the time of Uncle Rua's death, they had earned enough of a reputation as strong warriors to be accepted as kings by the majority of Hunnic nobles. Upon ascending to power, Bleda and Attila concentrated on expanding their control over Central and Eastern Europe. The exact size of the Hunnic Empire remains unknown, but the Romans believed it stretched from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea. This is likely an exaggeration, but the Huns certainly ruled much of Central and Eastern Europe. In addition to expansion, the brothers also worked to consolidate their authority over the Huns and their subject allies. They likely would have used a carrot-and-stick approach, similar to previous Hun rulers, threats and violence for those who resisted, rich spoils for those who submitted. 
Sooner or later, it became apparent that joining the brothers was far more profitable than resisting them. Especially if the legend is to be believed, Attila was chosen to rule by the god of war himself. Roman historians record that one day during Attila and Bleda's reign, a poor Hun herdsman noticed that one of his cows was injured. As the cow wandered off, it left behind a trail of blood, which the herdsman followed. The trail led to a magnificent sword half buried in the ground. Removing the sword, the herdsman wisely took it to Attila, who announced that it was the sacred sword of Mars, the Roman god of war. The Hun king took it as a sign that he had been chosen to conquer the world. The story is impossible to verify, but it's not unlikely that Attila used some kind of divine discovery to help solidify his rule. Still, while almost nothing is known about the Huns' religion, they probably didn't put any stock in an old Roman god. Regardless, if Attila did, in fact, evoke some form of divine mandate to rule, it could have only been interpreted as a challenge to his brother. In the aftermath of Rua's death, Bleda and Attila had to work together to ensure their survival. But as they consolidated their rule, it's possible they saw each other as rivals. While Attila and Bleda remained joint kings, an interesting political and financial opportunity presented itself to them in 435 CE. The Western Roman emperor at that time was a young man named Valentinian III. However, true power rested with a Roman general named Flavius Aetius. When Aetius was a teenager, he had lived with the Huns as a political hostage. While a hostage, Aetius was well-treated, learning to ride and shoot a bow alongside the sons of Hun nobles. Thanks to his time spent with them, Aetius learned that the Huns were not two-legged beasts, Roman historians like Ammianus suggested. Rather, he came to respect them. By the time he returned to the empire in the early 420 CE, he had developed real friendships with the Huns. We have no idea if Aetius had spent time with Attila or Bleda during his time as a hostage, but his connections among the Huns were strong enough that in 435 CE, he could confidently reach out to the brothers for help. In the Western Empire, the Romans were having trouble maintaining their grip on Gaul, or modern-day France. This territory was under threat from three different groups, the Germanic Burgundians, peasant insurgents, and the Visigoths, one of the two main Gothic tribes. Aedius, chronically short on manpower, hoped to use the Huns to neutralize these challenges. In exchange, Aedius promised not to contest the Huns' expansion into Pannonia and Valeria, two provinces on the eastern border. To sweeten the deal, Aedius also offered to join the brothers in a combined Roman-Hunnic attack on the Burgundians, who lived near the Rhine River. Thus far, the Burgundians had successfully resisted Hunnic incursions into their lands. The promise of an allegiance against them was just too good to pass up. For the next two years, Attila, Bleda, and Aetius attacked the Burgundians until they were defeated in the Rhine region. Western Rome maintained control of Gaul, 
And now the Huns had lands on the eastern side of the Rhine. Which they secured with more than just battle. According to Christopher Kelly, in a pitiless act of ethnic cleansing, more than 20,000 men, women, and children were said to have been butchered. Next, the Roman-Hun alliance faced the Visigoths and floundered. In a battle at modern Toulouse in southern France, a Roman commander, not Aedius, was captured and the Huns were routed. In the wake of the defeat, Attila and Bleda retreated in order to regroup and strategize their next move. The brothers decided that it was best if they focused their energy on securing peace along their southern border. So they decided to meet with Eastern Roman representatives at Margam in modern-day Bosnia and Herzegovina in late 439 CE. The Eastern Emperor sent a senior military commander and high-ranking court official. Attila and Bleda, meanwhile, came in person. The talks nearly ended before they began. When the two sides met, the Huns refused to dismount from their horses, and the Romans refused to have to look up at them from the ground. But in the end, the Romans agreed to mount their own horses, and the peace treaty was hammered out on horseback. In return for peace, the Romans agreed to pay 700 pounds of gold annually to Attila and Bleda. Plus, they agreed to return any Hun fugitives living in the Eastern Empire, meaning any political opponents hiding from the brothers. When the Romans subsequently returned two boys, both related to Attila and Bleda, the brothers had the children impaled. It was a grim warning to any who might think about challenging their rule. With peace established, the Eastern Emperor Theodosius II breathed a sigh of relief. Now that his northern border was secure, he could transfer troops from the Danube to North Africa and confront yet another Germanic tribe causing problems for the empire, the Vandals. A few months prior, the Vandals had conquered Roman North Africa and the key to the port of Carthage in modern-day Tunisia. North Africa was the breadbasket of the empire, and its loss was a crippling blow. Now it was time to get it back. Or so Theodosius II thought, thanks to his treaty with the Huns. But the redeployment provided a tempting opportunity for Attila and Bleda. The Eastern Empire was now short of manpower and rich with plunder. So as soon as the Eastern Roman army left the Balkans in spring 441 CE, the Huns broke their treaty and stormed across the Danube. When Theodosius II's officials confronted Attila over the breach, Attila responded that it was, in fact, the Romans who had broken the treaty. According to Attila, a Roman bishop from the town of Margam had raided Hun tombs, including those belonging to Attila's family. Almost certainly, this was all just an excuse to explain away what Attila and Bleda had already resolved to do. Regardless, Attila demanded that Margam hand over the alleged grave-robbing bishop. Then, before the town could decide what to do, the bishop himself snuck out, went to the Huns, and offered to betray the town in exchange for protection. Attila accepted. 
That evening, the bishop returned to Margum and tricked the garrison into opening the gates. The Huns soon fell upon the city and destroyed it. We do not know if Attila honored his promise to protect the treacherous bishop. For the next nine months, the Huns sacked cities up and down the Danube, slaughtering and enslaving thousands. Entire communities were utterly annihilated, leaving behind nothing but ruins and piles of bones. The Romans, eager to recall their forces from the Mediterranean, made peace with the Vandals. They formally recognized that the most fertile part of North Africa belonged to them now and beat a hasty retreat. By spring 442 CE, the Eastern Roman army was back in the Balkans. Seeing the Romans at full strength, the Huns saw no benefit in challenging them. So they simply turned around and went back across the Danube. With the Huns back over the river, the Roman chronicles offer little information on what they were up to for the next few years. But what we do know is that when Attila did return to raiding Roman settlements, he did so as sole king. Coming up, Attila and Bleda struggle for the throne of the Hun Empire. Now back to the story. <laughs> By 442 CE, the co-rulers of the Hun Empire, Attila and Bleda, had broken their peace treaty with the Eastern Roman Empire and successfully raided the Balkans. When the Romans shored up their military defense, Attila and Bleda took their army back across the Danube, biding their time until their next raids. For several years after the retreat, the details of Attila and Bleda's lives are not well documented. Which is a shame, because what we do know for certain is that during this dark period, Attila and Bleda entered into a life-or-death struggle for soul power, and Attila won. We have no inkling whatsoever of how the showdown between the two brothers played out. Perhaps there was a long power play between the two. Perhaps Bleda was completely unaware that his younger brother was plotting against him until it was too late. Perhaps Bleda struck first, but Attila survived and retaliated. All we know is that the Roman historian Priscus wrote in 445 CE, Attila assassinated his older brother. And that with Bleda dead, Attila was now the sole master of a vast Hun empire. A year after murdering his brother, Attila was ready to take on the Eastern Roman Empire once more. It appears that at some point during the power struggle between Attila and Bleda, the Romans had ceased paying the Huns the 700 pounds of gold they had agreed to back in 439 CE. Attila insisted that they not only pay their debts, but to also hand over more Hun fugitives supposedly hiding within the empire. Emperor Theodosius II refused Attila's demands. His Danube border was secured by Roman troops, and he felt confident in their strength. However, he did offer to negotiate and work out a diplomatic solution. Attila refused. 
Quite possibly, he needed fresh plunder to pay off his supporters, who may have been promised wealth in the lead-up to Bleda's assassination. According to Adrian Goldsworthy, Attila's main aim in his relationship with Rome was to profit from plunder during warfare and extortion in peacetime. Both reinforced his prestige and gave him the wealth to be generous to supporters. Similar to our study of the pirate kings and queens, Attila's hold on power was determined by how rich he could make his underlings. Wealth was the only real guarantee for holding on to power. So, once again, Hun troops crossed the Danube and swiftly took several forts. In all likelihood, Theodosius II was prepared to fight and ready to send his men after Attila. But an unexpected disaster got in the way. In January 447 CE, a massive earthquake struck Constantinople. While the city was not decimated, its massive stone walls lay in rubble. The capital was wide open to an attack by the Huns. And if they sacked it, then the Eastern Empire would likely be weakened beyond recovery. After praying to God for mercy, Theodosius II immediately set out to rebuild the city's defenses. Flavius Constantinus, the emperor's most important official, organized the reconstruction. He formed work gangs and used members of the Blues and Greens to fill their ranks. The Blues and Greens were two sports associations who cheered on chariot racers, like football clubs in Europe. For two months straight, the city worked around the clock. They even laid stones at night using torches. And after nearly 60 days, the walls around the empire's most important city were fortified. Just in the nick of time, word had come through. Attila did learn of Constantinople's vulnerability. However, Attila was unsure about carrying on to Constantinople. First, he was worried about the strength of the Roman army. Second, he didn't know whether his men would be able to retreat safely if needed. So, Attila stayed put. To this day, a plaque on Istanbul's walls can still be seen commemorating the accomplishment. It reads, By Theodosius's command, Constantinus triumphantly built these strong walls in less than two months. Pallas could hardly have built such a secure citadel in so short a time. Pallas was another name for Athena. It seems the Christian Romans felt no qualms about boasting that they had outdone a pagan god. Dissuaded from making a run at Constantinople, Attila consoled himself by sacking several other cities in the modern-day Balkans, including Arcadiopolis, Callipolis, Philippopolis, and Cestus. However, some of Attila's victories were by Roman design. The Romans felt they couldn't risk everything in a pitched battle with the Hun king. If they lost their army, then they would lose the empire. Instead, they cautiously harassed the Huns and sacrificed smaller cities to keep Attila away from the capital. Of course, that didn't mean some of the cities didn't put up valiant fights. For example, Adrianople and Heraclea, today known as Adirna and Marmara Erelisi, managed to drive off Attila's warriors thanks to their especially strong fortifications. Still, 
Attila devastated the countryside and fattened his army with plunder throughout 447 CE. Desperately in need of supplies, he decided the time had come to return back toward the great Hungarian plain. During the journey back, a Roman army decided to block their retreat at the Utis River in Bulgaria. The Battle of the Utis was a long and bloody fight, with both sides suffering heavy losses. Ultimately, though, the Huns managed to escape past the Roman line not long after a Roman commander was killed. Before long, Attila and his men were safely back across the Danube. Despite the close call at the end and the failure to capture a couple of cities, on balance, the whole expedition was a resounding success for Attila. It confirmed that he was perfectly capable of leading the Huns solo, especially since he was able to provide them with an enormous amount of wealth. He parlayed that success into negotiations with Emperor Theodosius II, who sent ambassadors to negotiate peace. As usual, Attila demanded that Hun refugees be extradited, as well as an annual payment of gold. Only now, he raised the price to 2,100 pounds a year, plus a lump sum of 6,000 to cover back payments. Adding insult to injury, Attila demanded that the Romans abandon a wide strip of territory on their side of the Danube, about 300 miles. Attila insisted that this was to be a demilitarized zone in order to protect himself against any surprise Roman attacks. In reality, Attila likely knew that the Romans didn't have the strength to levy a surprise attack. In fact, the real reason for the demilitarized zone was to make it easier for Attila for his future raids. It was a raw deal. And yet, the Romans were in no position to reject the king of the Huns. They felt they couldn't risk renewed hostility with Attila, and the best they could do was hope that if they gave him everything he asked for, he might be satisfied. Still, the conciliatory policy was humiliating and expensive for the Romans. To describe just how much the Romans were paying Attila, Christopher Kelly notes that one solidus, the Roman gold coin, could purchase a donkey, two solidi, a horse, and five, a camel. The 2,100 pounds of tribute was equal to about 151,200 solidi. Quite the army of donkeys you could buy with all that gold. Some angry Roman citizens complained about the sum. They griped that they had to sell their wives' jewelry to help pay the Attila tax. They were exaggerating. The 2,100 pounds of gold might have been around 3% of the annual revenue of the very wealthy Eastern Roman Empire. A hefty tax to pay to an enemy, to be sure but hardly backbreaking and well worth peace. At the end of the day, Constantinople's rich remained rich. But as always, peace between the Huns and the Romans remained elusive, especially when one side claimed the other wasn't living up to their end of the peace terms. And in 449 CE, Attila wasn't happy with the Romans. This time, though, instead of immediately crossing the Danube and attacking the countryside, he decided to take a diplomatic approach. Why, exactly, is unclear. 
Regardless, in the spring, Attila sent a letter to Constantinople in the keeping of his bodyguard, Etico, and his private secretary, a Roman named Orestes. In the letter, Attila complained that not all of the Hun fugitives had been extradited, nor had the Romans completely abandoned the demilitarized zone. Attila wanted ambassadors to come to him and explain the emperor's failure. Otherwise, he might not keep the peace. Theodosius II remained silent after the letter was read aloud, betraying no emotion to threats against the empire. Instead, he had Edico ushered into a separate suite for a private meeting with a man named Chrysaphius. Chrysaphius was commander of the imperial bodyguard. More importantly, he was one of the most influential people in the capital, and thus the right man to negotiate Attila's demands and broker peace. Alone, Edico noted, through a translator, how impressed he was with the beauty, wealth, and opulence of the imperial palace. Chrysaphius hinted that Edico too might possess riches in rooms with golden ceilings. But only if he was willing to work for the Romans. Chrysaphius then nonchalantly inquired into Attila's security. How many bodyguards he had, their skills, that kind of thing. Edico responded that only the best served at the pleasure of the king. Satisfied that Etico was willing to divulge even that much, Chrysaphius invited him back for another meeting that evening. When Etico arrived, Chrysaphius promised the Hun that he could receive all the wealth he had seen earlier and more. He simply had to do one thing, assassinate his king, Attila. The bodyguard, one of Attila's closest companions, a man the great king trusted with his life, mulled over Chrysaphius's proposal. Then he agreed. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the conspiracy to murder Attila and the climactic battle between the Romans and the Huns. For more information on Attila the Hun, amongst the many sources we used, we found End of Empire, Attila the Hun and the Fall of Rome by Christopher Kelly to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>